I invite the rest of you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we return to our series through the letter in Ephesians. I think the number is on the screen, but you could shout it out again too, Craig. Thanks for reading. Well, that's really helpful. We've got the page number in the rack Bibles up there on the screen, 976, if you don't have your Bible with you today. and Otherwise, if you'd fire up your cell phone apps and um, or open your Bible and join with me, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You read that title and you would say, no, all things are not working out from the macro to the micro. On the macro level, we see hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes continuing to wreak destruction and havoc, devastating families and communities. We see politicians and world leaders refusing to reconcile and work together. We see countries fighting civil war. perhaps the biggest oxymoron in the English language, as if it were possible. Countries dividing and drawing new boundary lines. We see people groups remaining hostile towards each other, maintaining centuries of conflict. Meanwhile, sex trafficking continues to generate tens of billions of dollars annually and is growing, and we could go on. On a micro level, good plans fall apart. Strong marriages fracture. Close friends drift apart and fight. And perhaps in some ways, that's your present reality this morning as you come in. Businesses go bankrupt, churches close, cancer spreads. In 2006, Catherine and I left our job, sold our house with great excitement and some sadness, moved to Wisconsin for an opportunity at a large church in Appleton. Eighteen months later, I was stocking shelves in a retail store in the local mall. I could go on, and so could you. So how could we possibly title a sermon, All Things Work Out? Well, they're not my words. They're the words you just heard read by the Apostle Paul as he declares in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, God will work out all things according to the counsel of His will, as if God needed any other counselor, His will alone 
is his counsel, and it will work out in accordance with his will. The very thing that Jesus taught us to pray for is already promised, that your will be done, God, in he- on earth as it is in heaven, is promised to occur. And so we have hope as we lean into that promise and to that prayer. Verse 11 is really a succinct statement of what Paul was saying in verse 9. And you'll remember that this whole opening section of Ephesians, probably our verses 3 through 14, is like one sentence in the Greek, as if this is just flowing and pouring out of the Apostle Paul. So he's already hinting on these themes of God's sovereignty, of His bigness, of Him working in accordance all things. He uses that phrase in verse 9. His purpose will be accomplished. The plan to unite, there it is, all things In heaven and on earth, that covers macro and micro. On a macro level, history is going someplace. God is sovereignly in control. Jesus has proven that. Scripture proclaims it. The Apostle Paul in another letter uh, to the Colossian church, chapter 1, verse 19 He said, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him he reconciled to himself all things. That phrase again. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As we look back on the promises of God, we see that since Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of Scripture, he is the Savior and Redeemer, we know that he will fulfill All the promises that are yet to come to pass. We have an already and not yet reality in following Jesus, in trusting His Word, in clinging to it, in walking in the kingdom. So what then when things don't seem to be working out? When cathedrals burn, when planes crash, when tornadoes ravage, when terrorists murder, when wars never seem to cease, what then? Will we cling by faith to the promises of God? Do we take Him at His word or do we put more trust and faith into our own perspective? Yesterday afternoon, we got the news story, like many of you, of the crane that crashed in Seattle and killed four. Two in the crane and two driving separate vehicles in what South, uh, South Lake Union area. And I just immediately was moved to grief. And you know, sometimes you can be numb even to stories like that. When you flip the news or you're listening to the radio or you get the report, and however you receive your news, and you just kind of are numb. And for whatever reason... I was standing there in the kitchen and Catherine brought that to me and I hadn't heard yet and I I just was struck with this grief knowing what I was about to preach on today and just contemplating what it would be like to have either gone to work that day or to said goodbye to your spouse and they were going through a normal day and then for it just everything to shatter. Thinking about those two in their cars and whatever errands they were running or wherever they were going, and just like lightning out of the sky, life is snatched. And it just struck me, and then we're going through preparing dinner and moving on through our whole routine, and so that, that feeling kind of drifts away and is forgotten for a moment. And then yesterday evening at about 
11.30 at night, I got an email from a, from a close friend whom actually many of you know, and it said, I won't be in church tomorrow as planned. My son-in-law was in the crane. And it just struck me. I didn't read it until this morning, thankfully. I may not have been able to sleep. How could this message, this word, this truth, whether, whether mine in a sermon title or God's word, reach into that family, the husband and father of three young children in an extended family and community. So that's a little close to home. Be in prayer for all the families involved. It's not public yet, and because I've only interacted on email a couple times, I, I won't share those names, but you know, many of you would know this family. Will we cling by faith to the promises of God? Do we take Him at His word, or do we trust our own perspective? All things will work out. Lord, I don't see it. The Apostle Peter reminds us in his letters that God is fully aware of all things. And just as in the days of Noah, when evil was pervasive and seemingly unchecked and unhindered, God was purposefully waiting. God's waiting is active, not passive. It's purposeful, not ambivalent. Peter said this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Do not overlook this. Beloved, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, but a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. But He is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But that day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We can cry out, how bad does it need to get before God will intervene? The answer is He has. He already has. The storms will continue, but Jesus is the ark who saves through the storm. The right cry in our world of pain and brokenness, of sin and suffering, in disease and tragedy isn't how bad does it need to get before God will do something. It's how bad does it need to get before people will repent and cling to God. Now that's still on a macro level, isn't it? When it comes to the micro of tragedy and pain striking family or friends. How do we apply His promises? His purpose and His plan to bring many more people into eternal life with Him. This is what Paul is revealing as he is speaking on a a fairly macro level in so many of these promises. It's what he's reminding the Ephesians are. This is who they are in Christ. This is their identity. This is unchanging for them. It's been God's plan forever. He knows them and is drawing them in. Verse 12 in chapter 1. He, Paul is saying, we, we, we Jews who have this Jewish heritage were the first to hope in Christ to the praise of His glory. But in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. More on that next week, Lord willing. To the praise of His glory. He's reminding these Gentiles, simply not Jewish by heritage, 
that this has been God's plan all along. That they have been rescued, redeemed, saved. That's been his purpose throughout history. Paul says it again in chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is on this macro level. We, we start to see what the promise of God will work out all things in conformity with the purpose of His will truly means to rescue and redeem. He is sovereign. His plan means heaven for us, not necessarily heaven on earth. And we must be careful not to force God's macro promises to apply to our micro lives. Here's an example meant to not to offend, maybe to unsettle, I think a verse and some of the most powerful promises in Scripture are snatched out of context and plastered on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and T-shirts and, and not wrongfully so. God's Word to be proclaimed is a good thing. But we must understand the context and when God proclaims in a macro way versus a micro way. Jeremiah 29:11 For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope an awesome promise with both macro and micro applications but not to be forced out of its context This promise has been claimed for our nation this promise has been claimed for individuals for their own prosperity that's not what is primarily intended here? In context, God is speaking. This is, this is the micro level. The micro level is for a nation, a people, the people of Israel, who had rebelled against God, rejected his counsel, rejected his prophets for centuries. And God is saying, I will judge you now, using the Babylonian army to come and rebuke and ravage, scatter and enslave. But in the midst of that, God is promising through his prophet Jeremiah, I have a plan for you. I'm not done with you. I will be faithful to my covenant. There, you will have a future and a hope. Many would die enslaved in Babylon. God would redeem his nation through Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the micro application promise of this passage. The macro the, the part of the promise that we all can claim is if we look forward to the future hope and promise fulfilled in Jesus. I will redeem all peoples. I will give you an eternal hope and future. In Christ, we all cling to this promise. That's the macro. We can apply it. It is true. Furthermore, on the macro level, it also reveals God's heart. God's heart is for good for his people, not for evil. It is for prosperity, not poverty. It is for hope, not despair. But these promises may not be for our present life, but for the hope we have in the one that is yet to come. There are so many of God's promises that we must receive on the macro level for our eternal future and not press to apply to say next month or next year 
as if they were some form of fortune that could be cracked out of a cookie. Here's a couple of other promises from the Apostle Paul. Incredible promises. To be applied and received, but not to be forced into the micro details of our life. 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, these clearly reveal the heart of God. His love for people. And the hope for those that respond to His love. It shows His faithfulness and presence to work in all things, the big and the small of our lives. From individuals, to churches, to nations, to the world. But we must not force these macro promises to say what they don't say or we'll end up believing in some form of prosperity gospel and likely be crushed when that doesn't, isn't fulfilled, question our own faith or our own holiness or our own obedience. And that is not what is intended by these promises. The Bible does have lots to say about our micro lives. Don't, don't miss that. But God's Word is primarily macro in scope. Cosmic and eternal for peoples and nations for families, his family above all. Remember, Jesus did say, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And if for some of you that's not that impressive, he says also that not even a sparrow, the birds are nuts this time of year, aren't they? Just crazy. So are kind of all animals this springtime. But man, just this week, sparrow, thump right into our window, done. And I'm reminded of God's promise. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's knowing. And you are much more valuable than they, so be encouraged by that. God does speak, and these are just a couple, that He speaks into the very details of our lives. He is present. He is active. He is interested and involved in the details as well. But the message of the Bible as a whole is macro, is eternal. God is redeeming the heavens and the earth. He's at work restoring all peoples to Himself to have perfect unity with one another and Himself in Jesus. So we become wise as we turn to God's promises and to His Word to first with the lens look at them through the macro. God, give us Your scope, Your heart, Your perspective as if we could possibly handle that, but give us glimpses of it, that we would see what you are doing cosmically, eternally, and know your heart through it. We want to see you. We want to know you, Lord. And then, Lord, how will you apply this to my life, to my today, to my tomorrow, to my immediate future? Because you are not disconnected from that. It's not only on the macro God speaks into the micro, but we must not force His hand or His promises. The Apostle Paul would often speak in this macro language. Here's another example. 2 Corinthians 4.16 and following, a famous passage. 
I'm sure some of you have clung to this passage for hope in times of hardship or loss or pain. Paul says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. And what he captures, what, if you know any of Paul's story and the apostles with him and their suffering, their pain, their threats, their death, their imprisonment, that Paul is speaking of capturing in those three words, this light moment, light momentary affliction. He is not flippant. He did not get there quickly, but he got there. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As Catherine and I were talking this morning about the loss of this loved one, and we're just dialoguing. She reminded me of what is earlier in this chapter, because Paul speaks on that macro sense, doesn't he? Find hope, have hope. This world is not your home. And it's light and it's momentary in the scope of eternity. Our perspective is limited, but it will pass, and we have an eternal weight of glory. Set your eyes and your heart on that. So he is speaking on a macro level, isn't he? But what about the micro? Well, earlier in this chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 and following, he says, we are afflicted in every way. Present tense, right now. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. We didn't expect this, Lord. Why, Lord? We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Every earthly person and friend had forsaken them. How can he say that? We are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Some of his very friends have been killed, and his life would follow. We are not destroyed. How could he say that? Because we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest. We are not alone. We have not been ignored. We are not left. We are loved. We are filled. And we are sent on purpose for these very things. Paul speaks to the micro, the present tense of our lives as we also have the macro promises of our future hope in Him Those macro promises are enough. They're enough. His grace is enough. He has done something about all things. When things in our world or our lives don't seem to be working out, God has promised and proven that He is working them out. And by the way, it's probably a good time to mention the arrogance of that belief that all things aren't working out. As soon as we start to feel that, believe that, proclaim that, we prove either we have already placed ourselves or we would like to be in the position of God and judge because we know what working out would look like. And it's not this. Now, we may not have all the answers, right? Your pushback, I hear you because I push back with you. Hey, I'm not claiming to know the details or to have the answer for all things working out, but I know that this isn't 
That terrorism, that racism, that sex trafficking, these things are not working out. Literally, while I was typing these notes, 7.39 a.m. Tuesday morning, my phone starts buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. And if you're signed up to these kinds of alerts, you're familiar with that if it's on vibrate. Just buzzing, 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 right? Child abduction, amber alert. And it's in the moment that I am writing this response, but, but God response, a child has been abducted and taken. And just multiply that, not knowing any circumstances or details of that, but just multiply the pain the loss, the evil, the brokenness, world over. I need to remind us of the conversation we had a couple weeks ago. The bigness of God, the mystery of His sovereignty. For us, paradox, that's a more modern word, a placeholder for truth. God's word is used repeatedly through many translations as mystery. There's an unknownness to God. I think Matt Chandler was the pastor who said, if we're trying to fathom God's bigness to understand Him, it's like trying to catch a fish with an inch of dental floss in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Whatever picture you want to use, we will wrestle. We will not get our mind fully around. When In Genesis 50, when Joseph proclaims what men meant for evil, God meant for good. I dare you to try to get your mind around that one and understand it. The Bible often proclaims the bigness of God, His majesty, His holiness, His goodness, without arguing for it. Now, the whole book begins with four words, in the beginning, God. And we roll from there. There's not a dissertation written on why, how could it be. God is proclaimed. We have a macro God Will we take him at his word? We have a macro God, but we do live these micro lives. What do you think is the longest stretch that you've gone with it, by look, looking into your life and not asking the question, is this working out? A couple days? You have seasons? Do you ever get there? And working out in accordance with whose plan and whose will? Something that you've set into motion and detailed and articulated or something that you've just dreamed of that you've never even put on a piece of paper, but the unsettledness of how could this possibly be working out when the sum total of our best plans and efforts fail, when the very things that we thought would fulfill, the things we've been striving for to attain, whether position or control or possession or family or whatever, and it actually comes to pass, the very picture Desire that we believe will lead us to a place of fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, completeness leaves us empty. When that new job that we just thought, if we just, if we just make a change, we'll get there. When it's more blah than it was the first time. And everything that we had hoped for doesn't fulfill. Maybe we would remember that our plans are not the Lord's plans. That His ways are greater, are bigger, are more. The scripture speaks to this repeatedly. James 4, verse 13 and following. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, 
Deo valente, Lord willing. If the Lord wills, we will live. Start there. If the Lord wills, I have breath tomorrow. And then we will do this or that. The planning, the hope, the desire, all good things. Make plans, have dreams, work toward, but not outside of God's will. Lord, your will be done. All that I'm committing to, I give to you. I want to see it fruitful. I want to see it abundant. I want to see prosperity. So does God. That is his heart. But Lord, your will be done. I trust you. I trust you. So is there no hope then for this, for this life? I think at this point you could probably say, okay, I hear, I hear the promises into the micro, but really, I think we're just trying to hold on with white knuckles and get to the end and just make it, just survive because our hope is, is something far bigger and more than the right now. And God's promises just maybe even seem like sandpaper to your soul, to quote my friend John Stumbo, in times of loss or pain or hardship. The Romans 8.28, the great Romans 8.28, doesn't comfort, it makes you angry. We know that for those who love God, all things, there's that phrase again, Paul, work together for good. He says, that's not a comfort. I don't even know if I believe that. This is not good. How could this be working out for good? A freak crane accident taking my husband, the father of these young kids. This is not working out for good. What is the purpose? What is God's purpose? If it's all purposeful, as God's words promises, is it to bring us comfort, security, abundance, or affluence? No. Those things would then be our God's, our source of fulfillment. God's purpose is that you would know Him and love Him. That you would know Him and love Him. This is Paul's prayers in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 16 and following, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that you would know Him, is what he's saying. And in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is his purpose. His primary purpose in all ways. What will it take to know God and love him? To quote Laura's story, what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know he's near? Would we do it? When do we tend to cry out to God and to pray, Lord, rescue, Lord, heal, Lord, meet, I need you? Do we cry out those prayers in times of abundance and comfort and ease or in times of pain and loss and brokenness? 
May we cry them out in both and all seasons of our life. But I want to join with kind of the nature of the Apostle Paul in the broader context of Romans 8, the what if question. Could God be at work in these things? And what if to draw us near, to bring us close, to help us see Him, to know His rescue, His deliverance, His healing, His presence, He would allow us to walk through these things? Would He send them? Paul shows us something even more. Let's not forget his circumstance when he wrote this letter. Do you remember? He is in prison. He's under guard in Rome. His life would end there. So while in prison, wondering if he'll ever have his freedom and be vindicated or if his life will come to an end under Nero. Not great hope there if you knew anything about Nero. But when? When When that door turned, when that key went into the lock each day or each moment or was Paul wondering if that would be the end of his life one day it would be that's his position when he writes these words to the Ephesian church God is working all things in accordance with the counsel of his will how did you get there Paul I don't think that's my testimony If the goal of all life, which Paul knew, is to know and to love God, then he also knows that the purpose of our life is to help others know and love Him. And Paul, as he said in Philippians, rejoiced in his imprisonment. He rejoiced in his imprisonment because he knew that through him being there, he said, the entire imperial guard in this place has now heard the gospel of Jesus. And without me being on the inside, that would have never happened. Sometimes the most powerful testimony we will ever have is proclaiming God's goodness and faithfulness in hard times, in pain, in trial, in loss, in uncertainty. And we consider Job. And when Satan challenged God, well, of course Job praises you and worships you. Look what you've given him. He has everything the world could ever offer. Abundance, wealth, family, security. He has it all. If that was gone, he would curse you. And I'm guessing most of you would know that story. And Job's testimony, though he struggled, his remaining testimony was faithfulness to God. And it was shocking. In fact, he was even cursed for it by his wife. Curse God and die. His testimony in the midst of loss was greater. The Lord redeemed it. We consider the believers in Acts chapter 4. After facing persecution and imprisonment and threats on their very lives, here's what they they pray. You may may remember from our study. This is way back in Acts 4, verse 29, though. Peter's praying. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, those persecuting us, And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This early church didn't first 
pray for rescue and safety and deliverance. We don't know that they didn't. Those aren't wrong prayers. But their first prayer was, Lord, give us boldness and perseverance in the midst because the power of that testimony was like light in the darkness. And that's what we are meant for. Earthly blessings. I hope you would also not come away from this hearing that we ha- I have some kind of poverty or pain theology as if that's the only way to truly know God. That's not the macro story. God is a lavish God who loves to pour out in abundance. He is a God of health and healing and wholeness and unity. He is a God of freedom and hope and joy. So hear that too. And in times and seasons, when you can grasp it and recognize this is an affluent, abundant time, Lord, I worship you. I do not worship the gifts. I worship you, the giver. Because any of those things can be taken in a moment. And do we not know it? I mean, a crashing crane should be just one example that everything can be stripped in a moment. And many of you have that story and you know it. So in times of abundance, Lord, I worship you. Thank you. I receive and steward these gifts that you have given for your glory and for my joy. They are taken and can be taken in a moment. Spiritual blessings will never be taken and will last forever. Paul reminds us in Verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It can never be snatched. It will never fade. It will endure eternally. That's where we set our hope in the God who works out all things in accordance with the counsel of His will. Will we trust Him? Will we recognize the ways he has worked? I hope you can see it in your own life, right? Our hindsight is more clear than our foresight. But even if you can't, you claim the promises of God and his faithfulness in Christ. I remember we were reminiscing with Holly and Eric this week, kind of on the job topic. We both have stories of of jobs that, didn't quite work out the way we thought they would or hoped for. I think Holly mentioned how disappointed she was when her office in L.A. closed and she was forced, forced, I'm sure there was a choice, but kind of directed to Seattle. Gray, cloudy, rainy Seattle. I know no one in Seattle. That was 17 years ago. God has a plan and a purpose. And when we moved to Wisconsin with expecting something to be completely different than it turned out to be, I wouldn't rewrite that chapter. There was sin involved with that. God revealed it. I wish I could take that away, but God's grace and healing, what he unveiled in my life and heart, what I needed to see while stocking shelves, God was faithful and had a purpose and redeemed it. And Lord, may I remember your faithfulness in the current or coming trials of my life that in the midst I could declare who you are and what you've done that if you have been faithful you will be faithful 
Thank you, God, for working all things in accordance with your will and purpose that we might know and love you. And thank you, Jesus, for the hope that you bring. On the macro level, it is finished. On the micro level, he is with us. Forgive us, Lord, when we fail to see it and believe it. Let me leave you with a picture. I'll invite the team to come. A picture of a rainbow. I was reminded of this this week. A rainbow, you know, is a symbol of God's faithfulness, of His promise. But how often do we truly see a rainbow? And you might say, well, around here in springtime quite often. I'm saying truly see it. You know, a rainbow is not an arc. A rainbow is a circle. Every rainbow that we see from the earth is incomplete. The earth gets in the way, and so it looks like it has two ends. For those of you trying to chase the ends, you'll never find it. It's a circle. And if we could have the vantage point, you could Google it and say, rainbow images, circle images, you would see. If we could get high enough, if we could get outside of this earth and see a rainbow from the right angle, we'd see the complete circle. There is no beginning or end to God's faithfulness and to his promises. But our earthly perspective is always limited. Our eyes that see here will always be obstructed by the material. So Lord, we pray, as Paul did, enlighten the eyes of our heart that we can see spiritually the fullness of your promises and your work. And where we can't, give us faith to believe, Lord. In faith we believe. I invite you to the table When you are ready, this is our regular rhythm. We draw near to Christ as he has drawn near to us. Receive again his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Come in confession. Confession. Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I confess where I trust my own perspectives, not yours. I confess the idolatry of my own life and the hope that is in things, not in you. And find the grace anew that is ready to restore and renew our souls.